0: somewhat feel a stir in my spirit. I have a message I need to preach. Hopefully you'll understand as I go through this, my urgency of this message. Amen. Amen. God bless each one of you for being here. All of our visitors, I thank God for you that you stopped by the sanctuary. Amen. I want to get to know you better following service. There's a connection center across the hall. Out the doors to my right, your left. We have a special gift for all of our guests. We'd love to see if there's any prayer needs, some way that we can minister to you here. The day started pretty much like any other day. It was a Tuesday. I'm pretty sure it was sunny. The records I looked back showed that it was 75 degrees here in St. Louis. As I drove to work and pulled into the parking lot, the news on the radio began to describe a plane that had hit the World Trade Center in New York. Now many of you know that day also. You can go back in your mind and have vivid memories where you were, what you were doing, how you continued to watch or listen as the news unfolded. Even over 20 years later, we remember so much. It was a day that the world literally changed. I want you to hear me and understand what I'm saying. If one person lost their life, it was too many. I'm in no way downplaying any loss of life and the tragedy that occurred. And it wasn't just one. They, they estimate 2,977 lives were lost on that tragic day. Again, one's too many, but almost 3,000. But without diminishing the tragedy of loss, can I tell you something else about that day? They estimate there were some 16 to 18,000 people inside the twin towers on September 11th, 2001. Since they don't have the exact number, this next number fluctuates, but it was between 13 to 15,000 people who were successfully evacuated. It's one of the largest emergency evacuations in American history. And then connected to that and following that, the evacuation of New York itself included the largest sea evacuation in recorded history with over 500,000 people evacuated in nine hours by hundreds of boats. I'm not downplaying the severity of what happened but please allow me to share something else that happened that day. Loose numbers. 3,000 lost their lives and did perish. But 14,000 survived. Sin does abound. But there's a whole lot more grace that does abound. Matthew 24, 12 says this, and because iniquity shall abound, or that sin that abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. They're just gonna cave into sin. They're gonna quit trying, they're gonna give up. But he that shall endure unto the end, the scripture says, the same shall be saved. This tells me it's not gonna get so bad that you can't make it. No, just do the right thing. You're gonna be rescued, you're gonna be saved. And even while all of this is happening, all this iniquity is abounding, the world waxing worse and worse. Verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. The gospel is just going to keep on being preached. Lives are just going to keep on being changed. Why? Because Matthew 16 tells us, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against death. You can't stop the church. Nothing can stop the church. Pass whatever law you want to pass. Prayer is still powerful, and it still works, and the church is still praying. You can't stop the church. Salvation is for whosoever will. There hasn't been a sin that his blood can't wash as white as snow. You can't stop the church. Make fun of and try to ostracize truth and twist it until you say it's causing the problem. Whatever disrespectful thing you want to say about it, whatever deceitful agenda you want to propagate. But truth marches on. Truth will always triumph. You can't stop the church. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it, that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you hear those words? When Jesus comes to get his church, he said, it's come, I'm coming for a glorious church, a holy church, a godly church, not a church that's beat down, a scared church or a defeated church. Nothing can stop the church. The church is victorious. I know this may sound cliche, but it's still the truth. You can read the back of the book, and you will find out that the church is still triumphant. The church is still victorious. The church is still marching on. Sin will be forever defeated death will be swallowed up grave will lose its sting and time will even be no more but those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb those who have been born again of water and the spirit those who are a part of the body of Christ those who are in the church will ultimately be victorious don't tell me that sin is so bad that we're not going to make it Don't say that there's no way the youth can live a godly overcoming life in such corrupt society. Don't buy into the thought that we need to compromise to have influence in our world. This is a glorious church, a blood-bought church, a powerful church, a separated church, a sanctified church, a called-out church, a victorious church, a destined church. This church is a reaching church and a preaching church and a praying church and a believing church. And the powers of hell can't stop this church, a church that proclaims truth, a church that's forever standing on the forever side Settled word of God, can I put it to you real plain? The church of the living God wins, it's victorious. You can't stop truth, you can't stop the church. Which then brings me to my question Are you part of the church? That determines your destination. That determines whether you win or lose. I don't mean to cheapen the salvation of your soul to winning and losing. But you will overcome or you will be defeated. I'm not even specifically talking about the sanctuary. I'm talking about being part of the kingdom of God. Scripture very clearly bears out that the church... The pride of Christ will never be defeated. It can't be stopped. It won't be stopped. If that's the case, then your ultimate destination, your ultimate victory or your ultimate defeat depends on whether or not you're in the church. It's really is very simple when you look at the Word of God. It tells us that if you're in the church, you'll be victorious. And if you're not in the church, the end will be defeat and destruction. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say something to you just to make you feel good about yourself. I want to proclaim to this church and to the world and to the nation that this is what the Word of God tells us. So can I ask you another question? Do you want to be victorious, or do you want to be defeated? The results are fixed. God's Word says truth will triumph. Truth will be win. The church will be victorious. Do you want to dabble in the pleasure of sin for a season, like Hebrews 11.25 talks about, or would you rather have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, according to Psalm 1611. Do you want to serve flesh, the world, the enemy? Or do you want to serve God? Because you can't do both, according to Matthew 624. Do you want to follow someone that lies and is the originator of lies? John 844 tells us. Or someone who's, who, who is truth and cannot lie, like Titus 1-2 tells us. You want to mess with him who is associated with someone whose job description is to steal, to kill, and destroy, or be with the one who gives life and life more abundantly, according to John 10.10. 10. I have never met someone or any type of a team who went out to play ball or some sport or, or race a car or even an individual who plays a game at home with his family or online with his buddies that got in there to lose. There may be reasons, but I don't want you on my team. And there may be someone. But for the most part, when someone goes out on the court to play basketball, they're going out there to win. They're playing to win. An army is fighting to win, to conquer, to be victorious. I believe we'd all agree with that. As a matter of fact, if you're on a team and someone isn't playing their best or they're not playing to win, that's aggravating and we get upset with them. In the case of a war, it's very dangerous. If someone's not doing their best, trying as hard as they can, and they're not being alert, taking proper orders and following the commander, that becomes a very serious situation and is dangerous. Moses, toward the end of his life, And before the people went to their promised land, he said this in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. It's a no-brainer, folks. Choose life that both you and all your kids and the generations to come may live. Then after conquering And after living in their promised land for a while, Joshua, their fearless and faithful leader, now was at the end of his life. And he said it this way, Joshua 24, 14. He says, Now therefore, everybody, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if that seems evil to serve the Lord, Make up your mind today. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. Whether it's going to be the gods your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the God of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell. But I made up my mind, and today I'll show you, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank God, in verse 16, those people were smart enough and they answered, and the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other God?" Good answer. Choose life, choose victory, choose joy, choose peace, choose God. I've tried to establish in the very foundation, we got a long way to go, that's why we'll hurry. Thank you. But we've got to, I've tried to establish some stuff. Number one, the church is going to be victorious, and ultimately, Whether you're victorious or not is whether or not you're in the church. My conclusion for this very first portion of today is we must be part of the church in order to live an abundant, victorious life, which makes me think some more. Why aren't people part of the church? Why do they struggle being committed to God? Can I say it like this? Why do some struggle so hard living for Jesus? Staying in the church, listening to God, obeying His word. Oh, there may be several reasons. I, I think a big one may be lack of knowledge. They, they've never heard about this. The, the gospel has not been explained to them. Another may be some have heard but they've just decided not to believe it. They've chosen to believe that the word of God is not correct, or it's not true, or it's fictitious, or it's not speaking to them, or they don't see it that way, or they're special, or they'll beat the system, or they give some reason why they're excused from following the will and plan of God, oh, they're not going to verbalize it, but are they acting that way? But that's a subject for another time. The one I have come to face down today is that of discouragement. Discouragement. I am very much going to speak to someone specifically today. God has sent me on a rescue mission, and I am coming after you. We can all learn and glean from the Word of God, but I am coming specifically for someone in this place, and Jesus, Jesus is going to change your life. Today, if you allow him to. (laughs) Discouragement. It covers a broad range of concepts. The verb to discourage means to deprive of confidence, to deprive of hope or spirit. To dishearten or to daunt, to afflict, to beat down, to, to, to demoralize, to depress, to dismay, to distress, to frighten, to intimidate, to irk, to trouble. None of that's good. None of that sounds healthy. So let's get a couple examples here from the Word of God. Numbers 21, starting at verse 3, this is when the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, and things were happening. And the Lord hearkened unto the voice of Israel, and God delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Hormah. And they journeyed, they marched on from Mount Hor after this great victory by the way of the Red Sea to to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was on fire. And the soul of the people was in revival. And the soul of the people, their faith was high. No. The scripture says, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. They had just won a powerful victory. But some things got a little hard. And discouragement set in. Watch what they did because they were discouraged, verse number five. And the people that God had hearkened to them and they won a great victory, those same people spake against God and against Moses. Why in the world have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There ain't no bread, there ain't no water, and this manna stuffs making me book. That's my translation. We have from a powerful victory to a problem to let's go back to Egypt and be slaves. That quick because they were discouraged. I'm telling you, this is serious. Even when the 12 spies were sent by Moses to scout out the promised land, Ten came back and discouraged the entire population from doing what God had promised. Later, Moses was reflecting on that. Look at Numbers 32, 9. And he said, For when they went up into the valley of Eschol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord had given them. God said, it's yours. God said, Go! God said, I'll fight for you. God said, I'll drive them out before you. Ten guys said, Ain't no way. That discouragement cost them 40 years. And everyone 20 years old and up died in the wilderness. Alex Marquez, was your birthday yesterday? You turned 20? You're dead. He dies in the wilderness. Skyler, your birthday's in a week and a half, you turn 20, you live. All because someone brought discouragement to the camp. Millions of people died because 10 people brought discouragement to the camp. I'm talking about how discouragement can happen and the terrible effects it can have. I won't take time, but if you want to read a discouraging story, just start in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah trying to build those walls of Jerusalem, trying to rally the troops, believing God had set him up to do the work, and then you had all the enemies coming and attacking him, lying to the workers, sending officials, sending letters to officials, making up code violations, trying to fight them, making fun of them in whatever way they possibly can. They tried to discourage them from doing the work of the Lord. I'm talking discouragement. Let's look at another account about how serious this is. This is the one I want to work on here today for a while. If you look at the account of 1 Kings 18, this is where Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the wicked king Ahab had a showdown on Mount Carmel. The children of Israel were not doing good. They weren't serving God and they were serving Baal and following after all these false gods. And Elijah came and said, we're going to have a showdown. Everybody come up to Mount Carmel. The agreement was the God who answered by fire. That's going to be the God. That's the true and living God. And those prophets of Baal gathered along with a lot of spectators and people to see what God would answer by fire on top of that mountain. Those prophets of Baal did everything that they possibly can to get their God to answer. And as you know and would assume nothing happened because Baal couldn't hear or do anything and so they would just waste it all of their time. Elisha, a follower of the true God, he just sits down and says a little prayer and fire falls and licks up the rocks and the dust and the water and the wood and the sacrifice. I mean, obliterated everything. And all the people saw that and fell on their face and started worshiping God. Can I say it was a great revival? That was a powerful church service. Somebody gets up here, and I preach and say a little thing, and shoom, fire shoots through here, and everybody in the building repents. We'd all go away saying, that's a powerful church service. But we're talking a lot more than just in here was there. It was a great time. Even more miracles Elijah prayed, size of man's, cloud size of a man's hand, turned into a thunderstorm, and all of a sudden the wind starts picking up, and he told him, get the king off the mountain. And so he takes off in his, his Ferrari, and here he goes down the mountain, and here comes Elijah, passing him up, running all the way to the city. A powerful thing that happened. More miracles up there. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes for a second. You pray a simple prayer, fire, everybody repents. You pray and God sends a storm. You outrun all the, all the equipment that the king has all the way to the city. Talk about a powerful move of God. The next chapter, 1 Kings 19, the wicked king Ahab told his wife Jezebel, who was wickeder, everything that had happened. She said she was going to kill Elijah. She was furious. She was mad because all the Baal prophets were destroyed. And and she was out to murder Elijah. And Elijah found this out. The Elijah who prayed to God and fire fell. The Elijah who outran the horses and chariots all the way to the city. The Elijah who prayed and... Thunderclouds appeared and rain started. That Elijah, 1 Kings nineteen three, and when he saw that, when Elijah heard this, he got up and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah. And what did he do? He left his servant there by himself now. Verse 4, but by himself, what else did he do? He went a day's journey to get to church. No. Nope. To find someone to encourage him. No. Nope. A day's journey into the wilderness. Came by himself in a dreaded place in the wilderness. Sat down under a juniper tree. And he said, God... Let me die. It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my fathers. Miracles. Powerful revival. People turning back to God. God answering prayer. Some discouraging news. Elijah runs away, gets by himself, and ask God if he could die. Still in the same time frame, Elijah by himself. Let me read 1 Kings 19.9. I'm sorry. Brother Movermeyer, forgot to give you that one. And he came thither unto a cave. And he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came. And he said unto him, my translation, what in the world are you doing, why in the world are you in this cave? First, nine, First Kings nineteen verse ten, and Elijah said, "I've been very jealous for the Lord, God of hosts, for the children of Israel. You know what they've done, God? They've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down every altar. They kicked them over, destroyed them. Every one of the preachers, they killed them. I'm the only guy left, God." The only guy left that's trying to do anything spiritual around here. And you know what now? They're seeking to kill me. What do you think about that? And the Lord said unto him, verse 15, can I say this word? Get out of the cave. Go and return to the way of the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come there, anoint Haziel to the king, big king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And then I want you to find Elisha, the son of Shaphat of that town right there. Shalt thou anoint to be prophet in your place. And 17, and it shall come to pass that anybody that escapes Haziel, they're going to run into Jehu. Anybody who escapes Jehu is going to run into Elisha. You're not by yourself, Elijah. I'm getting ready to turn this entire situation around. Verse 18, and I also, Elijah, have 7,000 in Israel, all the needs which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. God's saying you can have all that too, but I want you to know, Elijah, you're not by yourself. There's still 7,000 people you don't even know about that's still on the Lord's side. He's telling him, get out of the cave and get back in the battle. I know sometimes you feel I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to live an overcoming life and everyone else is backsliding. Everyone else in this youth group is just playing around. I'm the only one left in the entire choir that's still anointed. I think I'm the only one left in this church that knows how to pray. Some don't come to church anymore and if they do, they don't want to be here. They don't listen to the word of God They ignore the mentors and teachers in their life. I'm trying to live this on my own. People make fun. It seems like sin runs rampant and bad and guys are winning. Yeah, I know how discouragement works. But let me be very kind but very stern this morning. Get out of the cave. Don't tell me everyone has backslid when over 35,000 in one day purchased tickets to attend Youth Congress in St. Louis, and that number continues to grow. Don't tell me there's no kids or no youth group that want to live for Jesus. I can see them all over the world going on missions trips and going to camps and conventions. But even here at the sanctuary, I watched them at Youth Week as they prayed and sang and ministered. Sister Emma Vincent, one of our own, since COVID in 2020, she has taught a a monthly online Bible study and people log in from all over the country. P7 clubs happen out of this church. It's many times the youth who are rushing to the altar during the worship and after the preaching. Don't tell me there's no youth that want to live for God. Don't tell me people don't want to come to church anymore. Then explain why we open the wall now to accommodate the crowd. And we have dozens of people going to our Spanish work. And every Sunday people from this church go and minister to the nursing home. And our daughter working in St. Louis has a free building. And God is doing great things there. Don't tell me nobody wants to live for Jesus. Don't tell me people are ignoring mentors and teachers when we started a mentor ministry development program here and had to turn applicants away because we had to cap it somewhere and last Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, this very church was full of people and they listened to three preachers a night and still filled the altars and prayed for a long time. Don't tell me people don't want to hear Don't tell me there's nobody praying. Do you want me to show you the camera footage of people coming in and out of this building who come to pray? Do you want me to introduce you to Sister Thelma, who along with others in this church join an all-night prayer meeting for people from with people from all over? Do you want me to introduce you to Brother Scott, who prays every morning at 5 o'clock and, and has done it for decades? Do you want me to introduce myself, who says your name every day to God and prays for you Don't tell me nobody's praying in this church. I'm telling Elijah, you just need to get out of the cave. You're getting more and more discouraged, and you cannot truly see what is happening all around you. Yes, 3,000 were lost at 9-11, but 14,000 were saved. Fasten your seatbelts. Yes, I do know a people addicted to and dabbling with drugs and alcohol. But do you want me to start lining up people at this very church? who are not messing with drugs and alcohol? Do you want me to share the stories of people who are years and years clean from that junk or those who are a hundred days clean that God is doing a great work in their life? Do you want to hear their testimony of how those substances work to destroy them but God came in and rescued them? Do you want to hear them tell you addiction ain't cool? DUIs ruin lives but there is still grace in and- mercy oh I could start lining them up and giving you testimony yes there are crazy laws being passed some ungodly things taught in our classrooms some vile people spreading their venom and lies but let me me remind you we serve the king of all kings and the lord of all lords let me take you back to the word says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is glory, that he is God. I'm telling someone to get out of the cave. Now make sure your airbag works. And if you don't want to get out, at least don't spread your discouragement to everyone else and try to drag them in there with you. I know misery loves company, but there's a lot more company on the outside of the cave. Let's go back to Numbers 32. Moses said unto the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, you that know the story know it was a misunderstanding, but here, listen to what Moses was scared about. He talked to Gad and Reuben, those tribes. He said, do you all think that your brethren can go to war and you guys just sit here? Verse 7, and by doing that, you're going to discourage the hearts of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord hath given them. Verse 8, he said, that's what your dads did. That's what the spies did. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, They said, we can't. He said, you guys, all of you from Gad and Reuben, don't discourage your brothers from fighting. Don't discourage them from getting what God has promised to them. If you don't want to be on the Lord's side, then please don't discourage those who do. If you want to play around at church and mock the people and things of God, you'll reap what you sow. The Bible declares that. But I'm asking you, don't discourage someone who wants to live right. If you want to do drugs, don't drag others into that mess. If you want it to destroy your life, that's your choice. Don't work to destroy someone else's life. If you want to make fun of church, don't be a stumbling block to others. If you don't want to live for Jesus, let me pause and say, everybody's still welcome, but don't discourage those who want to live for Jesus. Parents, do everything in your power to encourage your children to live for Jesus. Bring them to Sunday school. Tell them to go to youth conventions and youth functions. Clean your house out of ungodly things. It's time for everybody at the sanctuary to come out of the cave and have a revival here in the city. Hebrews 10 And let us consider one another, watch this word, to provoke. That sounds... But watch how it's saying this. To provoke unto love and to good works. In other words, let everybody in the household of God encourage everybody else to do the right thing. To live for Jesus To pray, to start some spiritual disciplines. Don't discourage, but encourage. Then, verse 25, not forsaken the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. But what are we gonna do when we're together? Exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Getting together, not to gossip, not to fornicate, not to lie, not to cheat. Not to smoke, not to sell weed, not to watch bad movies, but to exhort, to encourage one another to live for Jesus. To make the right choices to follow the will and plan of God. Come on, somebody. I'm begging you this morning, get out of the cave and stop trying to pull someone else in there with you. You who are spiritual, restore such a one that has fallen and encourage them to come out of the cave. I don't live under a rock. I do know there are wicked things that happen all around us. But I also know that some that the same thing is true as was true with Elisha's servant, though that the the, Elisha's servant thought that the enemy had surrounded them and it was over for them. And that servant was so discouraged. 2 Kings 6.16, and Elisha answered, Hey, buddy, fear not. He said, because those who are with us are a lot more than those who are against us. And Elisha prayed. said, Lord, I pray. My buddy's struggling here. He thinks he's surrounded and can't make it. He thinks there's no way out of this and we are doomed. He is so discouraged. I pray for just a moment, Lord. Open the eyes of the young man. And the Lord did it. He opened the eyes of the young man and that servant saw. And behold, everywhere. The mountains were full of an angelic host that was on their side. I can't help but think of the verse in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Get out of the cave, somebody, because you're not alone in that, you are alone in that cave, but you're not alone when you come out of that cave. Let me skip through some of this. Let me go to Psalm 27.1. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Even verse 2, it says, when the wicked. Oh, there was people coming up against him. Even when the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, they came up and what they come to do? Had an ice cream party? No, they came up to destroy me. They came up to sabotage me, to ruin everything in my life. It says they stumbled. Somehow they stumbled and they fell. It says though an host should encamp against me, the whole church turned their back on me. The whole world turned their back on me. All hell sins and attack against me. My heart shall not fear. Why can I say that? Why can David say that? Why can you say that? The war rise against me, and this will I be confident, that the Lord is with me. The Lord is on my side. I am begging and working hard today to have someone get out of the cave. Musicians, if you come, and if all that's not enough, and you say it's plenty, Hebrews 12:1. Wherefore seen, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You can't run in a cave. Get out of the cave. This great cloud of witnesses... People who have already made it, those whose lives speak to us, the apostle Paul is saying, come on, you can make it. Peter and Philip and James and John are saying, run, you can do this. Brother Dugas is over there cheering you on. Brother Gunn is saying, you can make it. Brother Middleton is standing at the mouth of your cave saying, get out of that cave. It's worth it. Brother Liberty and Sister Tubb and Brother Sullivan and Sister Montgomery and Sister Sullivan and Sister Sanders and countless others are telling you to run the race. Lay the things aside. They mean nothing in eternity. I am on a rescue mission this morning you have debated long enough, get out of the cave one last verse as we stand no comparison to me and Moses but I'm going to stand like Moses did in Exodus 32, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come. The word of God tells us that if you're on the Lord's side, you'll be victorious. If you're not, the way of a transgressor is hard. The wages of sin is ultimately death. Prod is the way that leads to to destruction. What other verses do you need? I'm telling you, you want to be on the Lord's side. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to cheat the system. You aren't going to transgress against God like it's no big deal. Sin has consequences. I am on a mission to rescue people from their isolation and from the bondage that they are in and from what the devil has plagued their minds with. Get out of the cave. Quit isolating yourself. Quit listening to the voices of all the naysayers. Quit worrying about what everyone else is doing and how everyone else is acting. God is on your side. The host of heaven, is on your side. There's a great cloud of witness cheering you on. Even right here in this local church, we're going to run with you. So I simply ask this great congregation, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come. To... Who is on the Lord's side?